We are a band of brothers, diverse yet unified, aligned to pursue the truth, resolute in our commitment. We are stronger together, and you are one of us. This is the Brotherhood Podcast. Well, I got two questions that I want to start with. And this is a little different than what we just talked about because I forgot about this first question. And this doesn't have to be long, but John, when we did kind of start talking and say, what would you think about coming to speak to our men? What made you want to do that? And my next question will be a little bit more about your story, but just right off the bat, what made you say yes? I'm sure you get asked to be at a lot of places, to talk to a lot of different people. Why'd you say yes to coming and talking to this group of men? Uh, Well, I guess, uh, Lee, Anytime I have a chance to uh, talk with guys about Christ, um, I mean, that's, that's the core of life for me, you know. So, so if something I say today or something that I hear from you uh, changes us and moves us closer to being really sold out to Christ, then um, that's worth it. That's awesome. Yeah, well, we're thrilled to have you. There's, uh, there's two questions that anybody that's been on a mountain men trip with me knows this. We always start with two questions, and uh, those two questions are, they actually come out of a story in Scripture, uh, but the questions that God comes and asks to this woman named Hagar in the Old Testament are, where did you come from and where are you going? I, I want to ask that first question to you, John. Yeah. What's your story? Where did you come from? How would you get here? Yeah, so that's a crazy, crazy deal, and I'll try to try to make it quick. But uh, so uh, I was born in Tulsa. Dad is uh, Dad was a machinist for the Frisco Railroad. He worked across the Twenty Third Street Bridge at the Roundhouse. Uh, he had a couple of uh, heart attacks in his early fifties, so they moved him from the day shift to the midnight to eight shift. And so um, he met mom. She was from Woodward. They had six kids. We were raised in a Catholic home and uh, lots of strong uh, family values, strong faith. And, um, but it was limited, right? You got a machinist pay. And I remember from uh, those standardized tests we would fill out in high school where you'd have to put like a category of your parents' income. And in, so junior year, I asked my parents, you know, what, what's the category of income? And, and uh, it, was, it was around like sixteen dollars to $18,000. Six kids. Wow. Um, so, but... But um, anyway, strong, strong faith, but still, I hadn't made it mine. So we got to Oklahoma State. I got to Oklahoma State University, and I was really getting there thinking, um, uh, if everybody in church is as big a hypocrite as I am, then, you know, maybe church isn't real, and uh, maybe God isn't real. And so, I, you know, my first two years at OSU, my goals were totally uh, selfish. It was, you know, beer and girls and grades and lifting weights. And, of course, lifting weights doesn't last a long time. But, uh, but, but I started to see really at the end of the second year of that 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 selfish life was so bankrupt. And uh, then there were some friends who were starting to do a leadership thing that uh, would explore the moral and spiritual implications of being a leader. And I was drawn to leadership, but they were going to look at the, the uh, life and teachings of Jesus as their role model. Yeah. And so uh, what happened was I peeled back all the layers uh, and, and started to relook at faith from the standpoint of who is Jesus as a person. Wow. 
And so I was drawn to Jesus as a person. He was a great leader. You know, he was, the, he was uh, a rebel. He was a rabble rouser. And I had been for two years. In fact, the way I made, I ended up being student body president at OSU. And the way my name became popular was after freshman year, we came back and beer had gone up a quarter a pitcher. And, uh, inflation, we understand. Inflation. And I was outraged. My friends and I were outraged. So um, we got involved, and I got a statistics professor to do a survey of the ta- of tavern owners and proved that, um, that uh, they weren't paying the students that worked at the bars anymore. They didn't have to pay anymore for beer. Their rent hadn't gone up. And um, so anyway, there was a big uh, newspaper you know, article and all that stuff, and, I, and the, the, one of the bar owners had me in the dean of students' office, and they were going to sue me and the university and the newspaper, and that's how I made my name at Oklahoma State I'm University. I'm sure you were super popular getting was, pictures yeah. of beer reduced. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but it wasn't the religious crowd. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, we were religious about beer. And uh, so anyway, just to see the, uh, the you know, contrast of selfish, hedonistic life and how uh, empty it is. Like I really thought if this is all life is, if it's just a matter of getting more sophisticated toys, uh, that's not enough for me. Yeah. And so then this fledgling little group of students is trying to study who this guy Jesus is. Mm. And they re- we didn't have any idea who, what, we couldn't teach each other, so we'd play a, this is an old statement, we'd play a cassette tape of a teacher. And one time we were, you know, praying at the end and we were holding hands, guys and girls, and somebody walks up to the table and immediately we drop hands. Uh-huh. You know, like, yeah. don't see us holding hands. Right. But um, anyway, so in that instance, then I went, uh, fell back on some things that my father was about, which is, you know, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing right. And so following Jesus meant, well, gosh, who is he? And so uh, then we were fortunate to go to Germany on a, after law school on a rotary fellowship. And we met um, Dave Jewett's brother-in-law and sister. And they were big into a group called Navigators, which was discipleship training yeah. in the Word. Mm-hmm. And so you take this Catholic, you know, we've, I kind of grew up thinking if you carried a Bible around, you were insecure yeah. and emotionally unstable. Mm. And that didn't come from my church or my, it's just me being insecure. But anyway, so then we tore into the Bible for a year and that led to more years of tearing into the Bible and, and, um, and there's no question that that answered the question for me, what is worth my life? Yeah. Certainly not a boat and a lake house, um, but, but uh, following Jesus and going wherever he leads, that's worth it. Yeah. Man, and here's the deal. In a room our size with this many guys, all of us have been there where we were chasing after things that we thought we're going to make us happy, chasing after th- things that we thought would make us feel accomplished and fulfilled, and then we get closer and closer to those things and realize, or maybe we get them and realize, this, ah, I'm still missing something. And we get to sit and hear from John today who you know, sits at very near the top of a, of a role of influence and of, of accomplishment, reminding us that it's Jesus where we find our worth. If you're still on that search 
Around here we say, you, you need to meet the real Jesus, not, not just some version that you have from a, your childhood, but a real encounter with Jesus. I, I, I love that, John, and that resonates with everybody in this room. Before we get too much further in the story, though, brotherhood is what we call this because so many of us um, believe in the value of walking through life with brothers, that there's really no price you can put on it. And I know at OSU, you made probably a lot of friends, but specifically one, Kevin Jordan, that you told me some things about the way you began to relate with Kevin that was exactly what Proverbs is saying about iron sharpening iron. He was making you better. You were making him better. Talk a little bit about that relationship. Yeah, so let me, uh, I'm going to do that, but let me first say that what, the way Jesus, when I gave my life to Christ, uh, that changed everything about how I viewed everything. So, so when I became a lawyer, I thought, okay, if Jesus were a lawyer, he would be the best lawyer. And when I came out of law school, if you were known as a Christian lawyer at that time, it was, you were like a D-minus lawyer who prayed the night before a hearing, dear God, please give me a miracle. Then you'd get your butt kicked and tell your client, well, it must have been God's will. And you know, that's, I don't buy that. And so if you're in plumbing, if you're in air conditioning, if you're in law, if you're in medicine, uh, the guy we follow, the guy whose power resides in your chest um, would be the best at what he would do, what you do, and would be, uh, would be honest. So that's kind of how we, we tried to build a law firm, and, and we were surprised that God was drawing people to practice with us. There would be a girl who graduated number two at OU, and she said she went to law school hoping she'd have a chance to practice in a godly law firm. But, but anyway, so, so our reputation in the community, I, we didn't have a, a, a fish on our card, although we're not critical of those who do, but our reputation was if we sign our name to a brief, that's our testimony. And if that doesn't stand for excellence uh, in the eyes of the toughest atheist critic, then, uh, then we've got more work to do, you know? So, uh, but anyway, so yeah, at OSU, uh, a guy who came along, he was from Skyatook, he was a tight Baptist, and I was a loose Catholic. And so we were, you know, an odd pairing. You needed each other, I we think, did. probably. Yeah. yeah. Like I've learned the Baptists only dance when they're not in their hometown. You know, <clears throat> at least Catholics are honest about it, right? And so, uh, but a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, Protestants, it used to be weird because they'd say in different groups I'd go to and they'd go, Christians, Jews, and Catholics. And I'd say, holy cow, I thought we were under that group called Christian. And uh, there were lots of misconceptions about Catholics, but... Um, so at OSU, Kevin Jordan and I met, and uh, we, we got involved in this conference and student body leaders from around the country, and one of our mentors said, three years from now, nobody's going to remember what a speaker says, but if that little group of students learns to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love their neighbor as themselves, that will last a lifetime, and your neighbor you know, the, our neighbor is everybody in the world. That's the story, the Good Samaritan. But our, we practice that on the people who are closest to us, right? So, 
So anyway, we, um, Kevin Jordan and I, he's a businessman here in town and lawyer, and uh, we made a commitment at that time to uh, promote Christ in each other's lives and to walk together for a lifetime. And so for 45 years, we have uh, talked or been with each other uh, once a week or twice a week. And we've gone through some great times, you know. Uh, we're much more drawn to like the charge to take the next hill. But sometimes you're back with each other in sickbay. And um, so, so both of us have needed that friendship. And, and uh, so let's just fast forward to, to when you're in politics. People, people come up to you. I wish everybody who came to, up to me had to wear a NASCAR uniform with the logos of who's paying them to be there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like who's paying them to be my friend? Because you don't really make many new friends in politics. You make a lot of acquaintances. But, uh, but um, when you know that no matter how you screw up, that there's another guy who's going to love you because his love for you is not based upon your performance. It's based upon the fact that God put the two of you together as brothers and you're going to screw up, and then he's going to screw up, and then you're going to screw up, and then he's going to screw up. But gradually, you're going to improve. And, and one of our commitments, we wanted to walk so closely that we would see sin in each other's eyes before the horrible harvest of the sin. Okay, pause, because that was in my notes. Did everybody hear that? Do you have somebody in your life that knows you well enough that they can see sin in your eyes before it ends up shipwrecking your life. If you don't, you are playing with fire. You are in a dangerous spot. I, John shared that sentence right there with me when we were having coffee, and I just thought, man, our guys need to hear that. So just before we run past it, are you close enough with a brother that you can help him and he can help you avoid the incredible pitfalls and traps that the enemy has surely and will surely set for you. If not, that needs to be near the top of your priority list. Who's the guy sitting at this table? Who's the guy in the church? Who's the guy that I've been friends with since high school that, that loves Jesus the way I do, that we can make the kind of commitment that John is talking about? Okay, keep going. I just didn't yeah. want us to miss that because that was huge, John. Yeah, so you can see the sin in somebody's eyes if you know that they're not a cursing person, and they cuss. Now, I mean, you know golf is a religious experience for a lot of people, right? You probably hear Jesus' name on the golf course more than you do in this room. It's true. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about um, if you're walking with a, your brother and he's married and you see him look at these women, you know, um, then you, that's when you're seeing the seed be planted, right? The seed, the sin chain, uh, you plant a thought and then you think about it a little bit and then you decide in your mind and then you're just a sitting duck. But, but anyway, that's what you want to do is you want to walk together and, uh, and cut it off there before it results in a, a really tragic deal. 
talk about that other thing you shared when it came to your friendship about, you said friendship is like putting $100 in your bank account every month. Talk, talk about that. Well, and I'd like for Kevin to be here sometime to share his part of the story. But, but um, when you, let's just say that this was finan- this financial or this friendship thing was about finances. If you put $100 out of every paycheck into an account and into an investment account, um, you may end up being a millionaire based on that $100. Or it may be that a tragedy comes along that for some reason is not insured. And you needed every penny of that $100. It could be, you know, I mean, you have friends that have cancer and they end up going to the Mayo Clinic and it ends up being expensive or they have a child. You know, we had a nephew who was born and uh, at, at age two years or so he had a surgery and died. Uh, one doctor was saying we need to operate before he has a heart attack and the other doctor was saying he needs to get bigger, more weight, more able to... Things come along that you didn't expect. We've got a good friend whose daughter has a child who was born with massive heart defects and autism. Or no, sorry, Down syndrome. And so my friend, we were playing golf, and he said, I would rather give my life than have my daughter go through this life. But by the end, by the time the baby came along, my friend and his family and daughter and husband were praising God that God had chosen their family for that child. Okay, that's massive. But, but that, when you put that $100 in the bank figuratively with friendship, you walk with somebody day in and day out. When they go through, guys, look, when you go through a divorce or a tragedy, you begin to think that there's no God. He would say, you know, I feel like my prayers bounce off the clouds. So you go through this incredible, painful trough. And, uh, and uh, if you didn't have already invested in that friendship time, then we would all cut off everybody from our lives. We become isolated. We go make stupid choices. And, um, and then we come back around 10 years later. And so... Putting, putting that $100, investing in a friendship now, don't think it's going to slow you down. It's actually a way to speed up yes. uh, in your walk with Christ. And also in marriage, Yeah. right? So my wife has the freedom and the, I've requested that if she has a problem and we can't work it out, she can call Kevin. Mm. And, uh, and, uh, and Kevin will come back around and, and you know, put me in a headlock yeah yeah and that's what's that's what I need sometimes one time in fact Kevin and I were arguing so bad on the way back from from a trip that we stopped the car and I from Missouri we stopped the car I thought we were going to get in a fist fight yeah because you're not you're not becoming a patsy for each other you're not sitting there saying whatever you say honey I love you that's bullcrap yeah what you're saying is what you're saying is what you're doing to your wife is not godly and, uh, and that's going to lead to, you know, we were flying back from a trip from Denver in a private plane, which was really cool. But we were having such an argument in the front that the owner of the plane went back and sat at the back of his own plane. <laughs> yeah. You, so, yeah, you need a friend in your life like that. 
All of us need to be put in a headlock from time to time. All of us need to be challenged. The, the book of Proverbs says, wounds from a friend can be trusted. Right. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. Uh, one of the things that I tell both my teenage boys all the time is if you want to have great friends, become a great friend. I think most everybody in the room, there are some exceptions. Some of you are still believing in that Lone Ranger thing. I can handle everything on my own. But most of us in here know having a couple, one or a couple really, really close friends to do life with, that's a, that's a bonus, that's a plus. But a lot of us will sit around and go, man, well, where, God, where's these friends for me? Send me some friends. And I think what John is saying is so powerful. You begin investing in people and you'll be amazed at the return on that in your life. I know that's been true for me. And uh, yeah, I think that's so true. And if Jesus, if, if Satan wants to defeat you, Satan's biggest fear is an alive believer, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because you're on fire. But, but so if he's gonna do, if he's gonna tear you down, he's gotta take that life out of your eyes. And the way he does that is by isolating you and throwing curveballs at you. And, um, and if, you're, if you're walking with your wife as one and you're walking with a friend or two or three or five friends, um, he, it's going to be harder for him to isolate you, to cut you out of the herd. Um, so it's not, you know, uh, self-made man, I think, is a, is a, a huge deception it is. Right? Yeah. Like every guy in this room wants to, I want to be a self-made millionaire by age 35. I want to be this. I want to be that. Uh, really, when Jesus came, he came to serve and not to be served. Mm-hmm. And he came to glorify the Father. And, uh, and so, you know, that would be our prayer. And the joy of it is when you walk with guys, it's fun. Yeah, it is. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Now, there's so much more we could talk about on that, but I want to keep us moving because there's a couple other questions I want to ask. I know that early in your career, you were experiencing some success as a lawyer. You, your, your star was on the rise, and you had an opportunity early to move into politics, to kind of take that step, but you consciously chose, though you could and though you had an interest in that, you consciously chose not to take that step at that time, and it had everything to do with your family life. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, when I graduated from law school, I wanted to run for Congress and, and um, just get out there and start, you know, slapping people. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. kind of, that was my attitude. Yeah. And uh, my wife pointed to a point on the carpet and said, when, when God strikes lightning, on that point, you can run for political office. And I thought, that's selfish, <laughs> right? you know? But uh, the deal is, I wanted a broader deal. There's a verse in John 15 called, it's John 15, 16. And it says, for you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. And then it says something, fruit that will last. So when you look at what lasts, like this building is going to be a pile of dust uh, what lasts, according to the scripture, it's the souls of men and the word of God. And so if you want, if everybody in this room really is, is uh, called and appointed to bear fruit that will last. So I had to ask my question, you know, myself, is the fruit of that political race for me? Going back to my freshman year and about, it's about me, you know. Um, and so 
What I've learned is that if we care, if we follow Christ and we prioritize our world, number one is going to be living for Jesus. And really, that's the whole ballgame. That shows up in your marriage. But then number two would be my wife because we're one in his eyes. And so life is about discovering how to be one with your wife. Then you've got your kids, you know, and we have four kids. Jono is here. I'm very proud of him. And uh, four kids, you know, so they're like all number th- tied for number three. But if you put a number seven up over a number two, if I had put political up over Jesus or over my wife or over my kids, uh, you're, you're just, you're dialing up disaster. And so um, what we do when we walk together is we help each other keep focused on keeping number one, number one, number two, number two, right. you know, and uh, so it sometimes kills things because here I am 6,700,000 years old. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, I thought I'd be the youngest at everything. Right. Including, you know, the youngest president. <laughs> but uh, but um, never could I put number seven, which was political public service, up over number one or number two or number three or four or five, six. Yeah. And so uh, when this came along, you know, actually – uh, can I talk about the governor? Yeah, and the, yeah, please. That was my next question. So we raised, uh, Attorney General Mike Hunter was in office. I'd known him in college. We held a fundraiser for him. And then he resigns as Attorney General. And I get a call from the governor's recruiter, and he says, if, you, uh, if the governor wants you to be Attorney General, would you do it? And I said, yes. A week later, I woke up, and I knew in my heart I needed to withdraw my name from that list, even though I really wanted to be in that public service role because of, hopefully, things we get to this morning. But, but um, I also knew that the relationship I have with our governor is one that's policy and judges, but it's mainly it's confidential prayer. And I knew that there would be thousands of people who want something from the governor, appointments and but not very many people he could call for prayer. And Kevin and I drove to Oklahoma City one morning just to be there at 7 a.m. to have breakfast with the governor and pray over an issue that he was really struggling with. And uh, so, uh, so I pulled my name. I called and I, I told the recruiter I'm pulling my name. And then if any of you have seen, have any of you seen this stupid movie called Liar Liar? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. So in my life, I'm almost as likely to quote Liar Liar or Talladega Nights <laughs> as I am, you know, some of the lines from the scripture. You're in good company, John. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, maybe they are my grandkids. But uh, anyway, so, so um, you know, I felt like I was having a liar, liar moment. I'm sitting there saying, pull my name, and I ranked number one, two, and three of the other candidates to this recruiter, but I'm choking myself, like, stop saying this, you know, like in the bathroom scene when Jim Carrey beats up on himself. And, uh, but then when I hung up, I said, Lord, if you want me in that job as attorney general, you're going to have to do the entire lift yourself. I didn't call one person. I'm not going to call. I'm not going to write a letter. I'm not going to do a campaign. I'm going to let it go. Then I know if I'm in this role that you put me there. So about six or seven weeks later, uh, Lucia and I are driving through Oklahoma City to go to El Reno to see our newest granddaughter. And the governor texts me and says, hey, any chance we could meet today in Oak City? And so um, I said, yeah, but I've got a full beard and I'm wearing shorts, so it's not going to be a formal meeting, you know. But 
Anyway, so I thought even then he was going to ask me to help him pick between A and B. But he got there and he said, I know you pulled your name, but we've had a lot of people praying. And there are people in this room who were praying very fervently that, that God would lead the governor to pick the person that God had chosen. And so he said, I know you pulled your name, but you're the name that keeps coming up in these various circles. Would you do it? And I said, yes. Because I knew in that moment, I had not made that happen. And only with God could it have happened. Because in politics, if you take yourself out of the race, you don't have a single percentage point chance of winning that race. And so, uh, anyway, so that's the deal. So I have really felt that when God placed me there, he would equip me. And so, you know, the first week, I had a chance to sign on with a pro-life signed Oklahoma on for a pro-life deal that we just was just argued in January before the U.S. Supreme Court, and we hope we get a pro-life decision. You know, crisis pregnancy is horrible, but death of a child's not the solution. And uh, so, you know, I'm praying that the United States Supreme Court... Yeah. I love that. I'm praying that, that this June, between now and, and July 10, say that we get a decision that abortion is not in the United States Constitution. Since 1973, 60 million Americans have not seen the light of day because of that one political decision. Yeah. And uh, so, Man. anyway, so those, you know, in law enforcement, our guys from the Highway Patrol, thank you for being here. This is incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. John, you said something that I don't want us to miss because I think as men, we can get into this deal where we feel like we gotta, we gotta hang on to, when, when, when we see an opportunity, we gotta grab that opportunity, we gotta hold on to it, we gotta, we gotta maintain the ground that we've already taken and not lose any of it. And I think what you just said is really good for a lot of the men in this room and that is that oftentimes when we are following Christ, listening to the voice of the Spirit, he invites us to lay things down, good things, to lay things down for things that are better. And I'm amazed at how he often will bring those very things back to us. What does scripture say? It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, John had this desire from college that he wanted to make a difference in public service, but his willingness to delight himself first in the Lord, to keep those priorities in the right order. And when he felt led by the spirit, I love the liar illustration, trying to stop yourself from doing it. But when you lay it down, some of you have some things in your career some of you have some things that you're just striving for that are getting in the way of you being the man of God that he created you to be. And you may need to lay that down. Say, God, I'm not gonna say I don't want it, but I'm gonna lay it down for you. And man, I'm amazed at how God, in time, when we're ready, he brings those things, the desires of our heart back to us, and it's right, and we know it came from him. We know it's not something that we created on our own. I love that about that story. John, I wish we had a lot more time. We don't. So there's one more thing that we've got to talk about. I, I, I'm guessing there are a lot of people in this room like me. I, I've had an interest in politics since I was in high school. I was on the speech and debate team, and I've always had an interest in politics. But it seems like in recent years, it's, not, it's hard for us not to become completely disillusioned with our political process as we just watch people fight, and there's just so much 
untruth and what story do we believe? And the fact that anybody would feel called to wade into that arena, I know for me and a lot of us, it's like, man, I I wouldn't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. And yet here you are, called of God, honestly, probably being set up from the time you were a kid to be wired to step into this. What has that been like for you specifically? You were appointed by President Trump as a district judge. You've been the attorney general the last couple of year, or last year. You're, you're in the middle of a campaign now. And with that has come all kinds of, I mean, there have been things, I, I Googled, there have been things said about you that I know are not true. And they're just said, this affects you, it affects your family. You're in the middle of this mess. How, as a follower of Christ, do you serve Christ and people in that kind of a climate? I think it's important, even though none of us are in your spot, because all of us are dealing with our workplaces or family members or whatever, that it is tense and it is difficult. And wait, that's not true. How do you navigate that, John? I'm, I'm baffled by it. Me too. Yeah, so um, I would say... I still, you know, I just told you the story about how I got into this uh, mission as attorney general, but still in the campaign, like I told Lucia, my wife, by the way, we've been married 43 years. So, right. I mean, um, and I, and I'm the first one to admit everybody who sees the two of us in a photo goes, what, what did that guy do? (laughs) You know, I mean, I admit that my strongest second corresponded with her weakest second, and that's when she said, I do. Wow. But, uh, but um, so what are our choices? What are our choices? We can, we can roll over like a goldfish, you know, f- roll over on our side, float to the top, upside down. Or we can get in this and fight for our country. Yeah. And rolling over and, and floating to the top is not in our DNA, Right? It's not. So, so uh, I, th- I don't like where America's going. I don't like what the America that we're going to hand off to our kids and our grandkids. I just don't like it. I feel like we're in a lazy river heading towards a waterfall that we can't see. Um, and I could go on and get political and all that stuff. But I'll, I'll just tell you that uh, um, I, I told my wife last week, get ready for 40 days of character assassination and just bombardment. Uh, And everything you see about me in the papers or the newspapers or the TV is false. Everything. Um, So we just brace ourselves for that. And so we stand for the truth. And and I keep having to say to the Lord like 5,000 times a day, you put me here. If you want me here, only you can take me out. And, uh, and if, if I'm not elected, that means that there's something else for me. But I keep saying, Lord, I trust you. I'm not going to take this back from you. Because then I'll start to, to uh, internalize it and just blow up. There are too many things, great decisions that the attorney general gets to be involved in. And um, like fighting all kinds of battles in our cultural battle. Um, I get to be the tip of the spear. And uh, I would much rather die on a horse with my sword drawn than on a sofa with a bag of chips. And I think that's the choice. Yes, it is. 
that and and I believe that resonates with this whole room because that's what I've discovered about this group of men is that we're not content to just be on the sofa with a bag of chips. We we want to move with courage and boldness into the world around us and John you're doing that in your arena, your calling. But but think about it for you with your family, with your wife and children, with your career with, with your neighborhood, with your areas where you serve, both in the church and outside the church, um, be on your horse with your sword drawn. I think you just answered my last question in a sense because I was, I was thinking the last thing we wanna do is pray for you. And, I, and you can still answer this question, but I at least already know from what you just said that one of the things that we can pray for you is for you and your family as you finish literally the race here of the election that that God would strengthen you as you are bombarded. I think probably I foolishly thought, are we praying that the election goes well? But I love what you just said. If God has you here, it will go well. You know, it, 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 he will move you exactly where he wants you to be. And what if, if you didn't pick up on this, what I keep hearing in the theme of what John has shared is that as long as you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of your faith, you will stay on track. As soon as you get your eyes off onto these awful people who are absolutely making up crazy, if you Google John, everything before he got appointed to that uh, district judge by, by President Trump. Everything before that is like, this guy's amazing. This guy's record is incredible. This guy is the top of every single class. Then as soon as that happened, it's like, this guy's incompetent. This guy has no business being in this room. Like, wow, that, that switched pretty quick. That's right. And, and look at that. You know, so you, you know the, the Bible says that a good reputation is worth more than silver and mm-hmm. gold. So you worked for all these years to build a good reputation, and then they don't care. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's lies. You know, the ABA is a liberal trade or association that about 10% of lawyers belong to, but I quit it when it went pro-abortion lobbying in the 1990s. Yeah. And so the ABA came out after, after I had a 38-year law career, and, and they came out and said I was not competent, and I was unethical. Mm. Yeah. So it's like biggest lie wins. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. No. What I figured was I needed I needed to not make my reputation a god. Mm. Wow. That sucks. Mm-hmm. Honestly, but um, I got a lot of pride from my reputation, and I found out when somebody tried to trash it uh, that um, I had put a lot of pride in this in that and now I always want us to have a good reputation we earned that yeah but um but if if it's something that's so cheap that somebody can steal it from you then you know it wasn't worth holding on to and so anyway uh yeah June 28 is a very important election date that's our primary and um, the, if you'll just study the candidates, there's yeah. my, my opponent and I are night and day. Yeah. So you have a very clear choice. And uh, I, I do want to go back to one thing, Lee, if I could. Yeah. My first week in office, I went into a, uh, a task force of law enforcement, federal, state, and local on human trafficking. Yeah. The Mexican cartels make $100 million a week selling humans into America. 
Now that means we're buying sex, sex trafficked girls and boys, yeah. and we're buying labor trafficked slaves. And it's real, and it's in Oklahoma. The second week I was out here at the Hard Rock, I guess it's that way, uh, to, with A1, you know, a group of narcotics officers. And after that, I spoke to him, and then after this, this really rough-looking guy comes up to me and pretty aggressively, and all of a sudden I was wishing I had taken the security that the state offered. And uh, he stuck out his hand and shook my hand and said, thank you. And uh, he was an undercover narcotics agent. But he was straight out of Hollywood. If I were buying drugs, I'd have bought them from him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the third week, you know, uh, we were with domestic violence and sexual abuse uh, law enforcement folks. So that's why I wanted to recognize our highway patrolmen and yeah. our law enforcement because they see this wicked underbelly of our society. Mm -hmm. And somehow they don't give in to the cynicism. And I love what the state of Oklahoma is doing now in devoting more attention to these officers, to compensation and to mental health, helping them deal with the things you are praying for. Yeah. Uh, so when you see a, uh, someone from the law enforcement, uh, make sure you go up and tell them thank you. Don't let them go through a career and say, man, nobody ever came up and thanked me because yeah. they give, they sacrifice or put their lives at risk for ours. Yes, they do. And, uh, and we need them in the rule, uh, if we're going to be a nation of the rule of law. That's right. That's so, right. Anyway. Well, it's after 745. I know a lot of you got to get, get to work, but here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to finish with prayer. I'm going to lay a hand on John, but if, if you're comfortable, you can just reach a hand toward us. Let's, let, let this not just be my prayer. Let us as a brotherhood be praying for our brother. Like I said, John just didn't swoop in today to share a story and get our vote and swoop out. John's here on a regular basis. Like he, he's been here more, two or three, four times just to support what we're doing, just because he believes in it. And, uh, and he's connected to a lot of you guys too. And so he's one of us. So I, I wanna pray for him and his family in these last few days of the, of the election. And uh, I'd, in, I'd encourage you to pray along with me if you would. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for my brother, my new friend. I thank you for the life that he's lived He's in a spotlight now these last few years, but he has been living for many years as a disciple and as a man who honors you with his life, with his gifts. That's who we wanna be. Everybody in this room wants to be a man who honors you with our life and our gifts. I pray specifically for John and for his wife, Lucia, and their children, that in these last few days of this campaign, as things are said and written and posted that are cruel and untrue. I pray that you would give them a resolve, that you would give them a lightness in their spirit to let all that go, to fix their eyes on you and trust you that their steps are ordered of you. God, I pray for favor for John O'Connor and his family as they seek to use what you've given them to help and lead other people toward you. Thank you for our brother. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. <laughs>